want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're studying the improbable king. We're learning about one who is, from the world's standpoint, a surprise to be the dominant king of kings and lord of lords. Um, before we look at Luke 2, I do want to recognize, uh, again, this is a weekend right before the year 2020. Who, you know, like me as a child thought, wow, one day we'll be in the 2000s, you know, and, and then you watch uh, futuristic shows and you think, wow, things will be so different, you know, in, in the future. And then here we are. And some of those things have even come true as you look at your cell phones. All that to say, uh, I was uh, shown a tweet uh, that was from a cell phone. And I don't typically keep up with tweets and all that stuff in social media, but uh, some people in my family do. And so I was shown this tweet about um, how we have been feeling over the last week. And so working left to right in this picture tweet, it was a stick figure smiling, a smiling stick figure wearing a Santa's cap. And underneath were the dates December 1st through the 26th under the title Festive. And then you move to the middle figure. The second stick figure was frowning. It's a frowning face with a piece of cheese in his hand. And the dates under there were December 27th through the 31st, titled Confused, Full of Cheese, and Unsure of the Day of the Week. Does anybody have that sort of feel over the last few days? Kind of like a big block. What, what day is it? You know, where am I? And then the last figure was a much rounder figure wearing a nondescript expression representing January on. <laughs> Someone tweeted about this middle, these middle days that I just mentioned between Christmas and New Year's saying, it's the best time of year. Nobody minds if I don't go outside. I can eat anything I want. And at any time of the day, nobody minds. My outfit is part normal clothes and part pajamas. This is how I would live all the time if I won the lottery. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've been living that way or not, um, but this is a natural pivot point in our year. It's where we want to reload and launch out of the malaise, out of the fog of last year going into this year. Perhaps you want to be jump-started. Um, perhaps you're taking an introspective inventory, asking yourself, what's the most significant lesson that I learned in 2019? What can I do for betterment? How can I um, broaden myself? Well, if you want to be better in 2020, you have to broaden more than just sort of a self-analysis, right? We have to broaden our scope in terms of what God is doing in our lives and in our world. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the base summary of my life for God, for God? So we have to ask our evaluative question, not in light of just ourselves and bettering ourselves, but ourselves in light of Christ and what he wants for us. How do we make 2020 a year for Christ? Well, Luke 2 gives us, interestingly, two people to look at as models and as examples from scripture to be like. We always want to be like Christ, but the Bible is chock full of people who live for God in a way that it gives us examples. And these people named Simeon and the other Anna are found in the temple anticipating the birth 
and presentation of the Messiah. And they were given their whole lives to that anticipation, to that affection for Christ who was to come. You might say, well, that's out of my bailiwick. That's, that's out of my universe. I can't be like those people. And I think that is very, uh, it's very important for you not to think that way. Don't be short-sighted in that way. Don't make the big mistake and say, I can't relate to these two, Simeon and Anna. I can't relate to them at all. But these two had a focus on the improbable king in a way that we should also have a focus. So let me read to you Luke 2. Look at verse 22 and following. It picks right up where we've left off in our study of the improbable king. This is part three, beginning at verse 22. It says, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Let's stop there. First, we're going to be introduced to Simeon. We're going to hopefully get to Anna as well. I'll I'll have to make sure we get there. She's equally remarkable. Simeon, a prophet, Anna called a prophetess. They have a lot in common, unique lives as people who are watchmen on the wall, as it were. 400 years of silence after the final minor prophet, that great Italian Malachi. I mean, Malachi from the Old Testament, just to wake you up a little bit. The Malays, remember? All right, here we go. So 400 years of darkness. And then the dawning, the dawning of the birth of Christ, as we've learned in Luke chapter 2. Christ has come and he's being presented. And Simeon is waiting there. If you look at verse 25, it gives a very clear description about who he was there was a man in Jerusalem. So he's right there, right place, right time. His name's Simeon. A man was righteous and devout, waiting for the peace of Israel or waiting for consolation. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So several distinctions here. Um, he was righteous. He was devout. His righteousness was not a legalism. It was not obligatory obedience to go to the temple. This was wrought by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being upon him, the Holy Spirit whom had revealed to him his mission in life. Look at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death 
before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he was a man who was receiving direct revelation from the Lord. He was heeding the word of God as it was illumined in his heart by the Holy Spirit. So if you want to principalize his life for your life, if you want to gain perspective on how you should live in 2020 to be like Simeon, well, the first point is Simeon had clarity of purpose. So Christ defining your 2020 means for you that you'll have clarity in purpose. Where did Simeon's clarity come from? It came from the word of God itself. He knew by this revelation that had been given him that he wouldn't see death before seeing Christ. Let me ask you this question. First of all, you sitting here this morning, have you seen Christ before you die? You haven't died yet, but this is our prayer for everyone, right? That they would see Christ before they would die. This was Simeon's promise because he was saved by the Holy Spirit. He's a version of an Old Testament saint who lived before Christ died on the cross, but he lived in light of the Messiah. The Holy Spirit had transformed him and he had seen, foreseen that he would see Christ through the eyes of faith. This is our prayer for everyone. A bird's eye view of Luke 2, if you've not been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that all the details were coming together even back in verse 1 where the decree had been sent out by Caesar Augustus, a man who thought himself to be God on earth. He constructed a registration and, and demanded that everyone be registered under the Roman Empire. He wanted to build his army. And so Joseph ended up going from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to go to Bethlehem. And that origin is where the birth of Jesus was found and, and happened because it was fulfilling perfect prophecy. We've learned about this. Verse 21 shows that Mary and Joseph are just following standard legal protocol as Israelites. They were obeying the law. It was at the end of verse 21, eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Per the angel's instruction, he was called Jesus. What does Jesus mean? Well, it's Yeshua in Hebrew. It's Yeshua HaMashiach. He's Joshua or Jehovah saves. It's all to proclaim who he was. This was a common name, but not given for a common purpose and a common person. This was the Messiah born in poverty. Verse 22 um, goes on, it says, it's when the time came for their purification. So 40 days after Jesus' birth, he was to be, he was circumcised. But then 40 days later, there was a purification process. According to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem. He needed to be presented. This is just standard fare, standard operating procedure for the son to be brought to Jerusalem. But all of this is coordinated under the perfect plan of God, not by coincidence whatsoever. And then you see in verse 23, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. He was to be set apart according to the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two pigeons were given Mary and Joseph were too poor to offer a lamb. They didn't own that. They didn't have money for that. Jesus was born in poverty, but was born perfect. 
and two turtle doves were offered for him. The wise men had not yet visited Mary and Joseph at this point, so they would not have had the greater gifts and the promptings to offer anything more than that. If you tie everything together back in verse 27, you see that all of these circumstances were coming together by the Spirit's work. Look at verse 27. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Who sent Simeon to the temple that day? The Holy Spirit did. He did. Perfectly timed in the court of women, Joseph of Joseph and Mary. Mary not being able to go beyond that. They would have been in the court of women according to the custom of the law. So what was Simeon's response? Again, he had clarity in mission. He knew exactly what he needed to do. No one told him outside of the Holy Spirit himself that this was Christ. And yet Simeon had great boldness when he saw the child. Verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, Simeon, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Simeon's entire life was built around this moment, this witness of Christ. It's no different than Anna's role. This is the first of two witnesses so that the great confirmation and verification that this is the Messiah was to be set. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it was too bold of Simeon knowing who Jesus was as this little baby for him to scoop the baby up in his arms? I mean, we don't normally do that when somebody has a newborn, right? We just don't, we probably would ask, you know, we don't just scoop the baby up like, hey, Mary, excuse me. I've got Jesus. Well, is he too bold? Was it too daring? This is the incarnate deity. This is the enfleshed God, man, Isaiah nine, six, as we've been learning, a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulders, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Simeon goes, I'm scooping him up. I want to bless God with this child. But isn't this exactly what Christ wants us to do with him? to go boldly to him, to run to the son. Yes, we need to be humble. We need to fear God and we need to understand with whom we have to do, right? There's that balance, understanding holiness. But the more that we understand the grace of the gospel, the more that we understand that there's nothing in us that can save us. There's no good work that can make us right with God. We're unworthy. Where the prodigal running to the father as the father runs to us, we run to embrace. We scoop up the Lord Jesus in our hearts and say, you are Lord. This is faith. This is what faith looks like. We come to Christ and whosoever will comes to Christ. C.H. Spurgeon said this, he said, come poor troubled ones, come and take Jesus into your arms as though he were still a babe. Take him to your heart and say, he is the everlasting one. He's everything to me, my love, my hope, my brother. This is clarity of purpose. All right, so going into 2020, how do you scoop him up in your arms? How do you know Jesus with clarity? How do you know the Lord's mission in your life with clarity? Well, I want to encourage you. This is the jumpstart for 2020. Open your Bibles again. 
read the word of God, but don't read just for study's sake. Read to know Jesus. Read to engage the Lord. The scripture is the word of God and Jesus is called the word. And the scripture is what led Simeon to engage Christ. And you need to understand that the scripture is inherently clear. Now you say, it doesn't work for me. It's hard for me to study the scripture. Let me let you in on a secret. And I've got a lot of books in my office and some of them are overflowing into a seminary library and whatever. I'm not a book collector. I don't really enjoy reading a whole lot unless I'm really interested in what I'm reading about. I don't just read to read. There are people in the room, one of whom that I'm married to who loves to just read and reading is relaxation. Reading for me is work. It's work. But when I read, and this is what happened to me, I was, I want to say 18, turning, no, I might have been 19, and I was given the reins of a youth group on Wednesday nights. It was at our church. The youth pastor knew I was studying for ministry. He didn't want to teach Wednesday nights for whatever reason during the summer. And he said, hey, Jeff, I want to give you the whole ball of wax. You got all the youth group. Sure, I'll do it, you know, that kind of thing. And so I jumped in and started to teach. And I remember my parents were shocked because I never really enjoyed studying a whole lot. But when I began to study the word of God to teach it, not just the accountability of standing in front of people and needing to sound like I knew what I was talking about, but the heart behind teaching it to give it to someone else. This is what engaged my mind. This is what sort of reignited the engine that was cold, that needed to be recranked. It was the idea of teaching the word and teaching is studying. I mean, when you study the word of God to teach, you're in this cycle of giving the truth to other people. You say, who am I supposed to teach? Teach someone that knows less than you do about the Bible, what you know. That's it. That's it. Teach children, teach adults, teach friends, Bible study together, but get yourself into the word of God by getting yourself into a teaching post. Teach the word. The word of God illuminates people. It connects the dots like Simeon's life. He heard the revelation. He knew his purpose. He knew his calling. And it all culminated in that moment. It was all divinely planned according to the word of God. And I tell you, if you get into the word ministry and get into the living ministry of the word, not academics, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about communing with Christ, with the scripture. Then suddenly things that you're learning about will intersect with life circumstances. And then someone else will say, have you ever thought of this? I was just studying it last week and da 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 and the dots connect and you enjoy the Lord in that way. So how do I know that I'm going to grow in 2020? I know I'm going to grow in the year 2020 because I'm going to be teaching Christ in the year 2020. That's how I know. That's my confidence. It's kind of a related story. This speaks of the conversion of St. Augustine. He was the doctor of grace and bishop of Hippo in the late 300 AD, 300s AD, going into the 400s. He wrote a book called The Confessions, which is his testimony boiled down where he was ultimately saved by taking up scripture. In Latin, that's tola lege, taking up scripture. He was a young man who lived in rank immorality. Now, many of you have probably heard of Augustine, an early church father. Um, you know, the Catholics claim him, but so did the Protestants. He was someone who, who basically clarified being saved by grace alone. 
And as a teenager, though, before he was converted, and he wasn't converted till age 32, he lived in illicit relationships, immorality. He had an illegitimate son. Um, and the unnamed mother actually became a strong convert to Christ that Augustine mentioned later in his confessions. Augustine's guilt led him to more immorality. And ultimately, he went to a prayer garden one day with a friend. That friend also became a convert to Christ and a church leader. But they were sitting together in a prayer garden in Milan. And Augustine was weeping over his attachment to sin. He couldn't detach himself. Listen to what he said. He said, I cast myself down. I know not how under a certain fig tree, giving full vent to my tears and floods of my eyes gush out unacceptable sacrifices to thee. So I was speaking and weeping in the most bitter contrition in my heart. And I heard from a neighboring house, a voice of a boy or girl. I don't know, chanting off repeating. And it was a sing song chant of children that said, take up and read, take up and read. Tola lege, tole lege. Instantly my countenance altered. I began to think most intently whether children were wont in any kind of play to sing such words. So checking through the torrent of my tears, I arose interpreting it to be no other than a command from God to open the book and read the first chapter I find. Eagerly, I returned to where Olypius was sitting and there I laid the volume of the apostles. That volume was the book of Romans. I seized opened and in silence read that section on which my eyes first fell. So he did the and looked in and what did he see? Remember his lifestyle and what he was trying to repent of. This is what he found. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word of God is living. We need to take up and read. We need to take up the Lord Jesus Christ with passion. So we have clarity in purpose. And then secondly, we have closure on our mission. What is the closure on our mission? Begin Begin again at verse 28, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, verse 29, here's the closure. It was like he's nearly 100 years old. Just think of it that way. The close of his life. And this is what he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Here it is, according to your word. The word had summarized his life's calling He had closure on his mission said for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel closure. Simeon's meaning of life was clear in Latin. It's called the nunc dimittis and translated. This is where. Simeon is saying, now you dismiss or now I can die. Now I can die. If it's time for me to go, it's time for me to go because you said I would see him before I died. The amount of revelation that he had was not as much as we have. We have the full New Testament. He did know his Old Testament. He was tying it all together, but he was satisfied. He was satisfied with his life. You know, I think it's important as believers 
to live in light of what could be our last day. Not just living in light of today and that today could be our last day, but I like to project out and think, what do I want it to be like when I'm about to die one day? Presuming I live a few more decades. You know what? Just projecting out. What do I want my kids to think about me? What do I want my loved ones? What do I want my wife to think about me? What do I want my friends to say about me? Ultimately, we care about what the Lord says to us when we meet him face to face. And we can't worry about pleasing man, even family. But we want to be accountable to living a life that was pleasing to the Lord, that influenced others, living in light of a future day where you can say, I'm done, I'm good, I'm okay now to die. A believer can say that because a believer departs and goes from one place to another. That's that word there in verse 29, letting your servant depart or transition. For an unbeliever, an unbeliever, death is a complete unknown and probably terrifying. Death is a blank to an unbeliever. An unbeliever doesn't know about the future, doesn't understand it. But a believer steps out of one life into another. We should be like Simeon and attach the meaning of our lives to Jesus. This is what it means to have closure on your mission. Everything that God is giving you to do and will give you in your lifetime should be attached to Jesus. Scooping Jesus up in your life saying, Jesus is everything to me. Simeon had seen salvation in verse 30. My eyes, my physical human eyes, that's what he's declaring, have seen Through faith, salvation. By seeing this baby, I see salvation. I see hope for a battered nation, Israel, that's been in darkness. This is the way of salvation. He is the only way. People only believe and only know God and will only know eternal heaven if they are given Simeon's eyes. You have to have Simeon's sightedness if you're going to heaven. You have to see Jesus like Simeon saw Jesus as the only way of salvation. It's easy to say, well, Simeon, of course he saw salvation because he was holding the baby Jesus in his arms. I think a lot of people get a hold of Jesus, right? And they really don't see him for who he is. It's like holding just a baby, anybody's baby. It's precious. It's awesome. I mean, there are new babies in our church. It's a cool thing during Christmas time to see new life and to think about the Lord Jesus. But a lot of people hold a baby in their arms and they don't think about the significance of what they hold. And people there and then, temple managers or whoever was there, many of them missed the significance of who Jesus truly was. Right there, a very normal looking child, normal parents acting according to the custom of the law. But Simeon's declaration is what made this all different. It was a different declaration than other people were saying. Simeon saw Jesus through the Spirit's empowerment as salvation. It's a point of closure in life. Really, when you boil everything away, it's only going to matter what you did with Christ in this life, right? It's only going to matter even in terms of your children, what you did with Christ. There's not a real T-bar that you can 
you know, draw up on the whiteboard and say, well, these are my bad things or these are my good things. And so hopefully my good will outweigh my bad in my children's eyes. Guess what? If you do that, you're going to fail. You've already failed, right? But what makes up the difference in the lives of your kids and the lives of your family members and the lives of your friends and the lives of others around you? It's who you are with Christ. That's what makes up the difference. That's why Simeon is in scripture, not because of the hundred years up to that point, but the hundred years were measured in light of his commitment to Christ culminating in that moment. So last point, comfort in sovereignty, comfort in sovereignty. We have this because we know that the Lord's plan is perfect. Now, I use the word comfort here, not because the next few verses are only comforting. It's to say that life is not comfortable at every one point, but God's plan is perfect and is the only thing that really can bring you comfort in this life. Trusting in the sovereignty of God, you know what that means? That means that you're willing to yield to the Lord's direction to the Lord's oversight, to the Lord's leading in your life through the great highs and the deep, dark crises of your life, all under his sovereign umbrella. And there's comfort there, even in the deepest, darkest moment of your life. If you're yielded to the sovereignty of God, like Job was yielded to the Lord when he lost everything, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the only place you can find comfort and peace in a fallen world. And then when the highs are there and the joys are there, you also count them as great blessings, seeing the sovereignty of God in your life. Simeon knew God's plan because he knew the Old Testament. And this is chock full with Old Testament illusion, illusion rather. He was watching the world through God's eyes. And he was seeing Israel as a lighthouse for all peoples. Look at verse 31. It says that you have prepared, the salvation is Christ, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Israel was always meant to be a light to all peoples. Verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, to everyone, the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. There's great comfort in this, understanding that everything was culminating now around Christ. The plan was clear. Isaiah 42, 6, the plan was always for Israel to be a light to the nations. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. You know, sometimes when we think of Israel, we think of it as being us four, shut the door, no more. It was just a closed country, but really it was a city on a hill. It was, it was meant to be a beacon and a lighthouse and a nation among the nations to show God to the world. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, it is too, it, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, my salvation, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 52, 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Isaiah 60, verse 3, and nations shall come to your light. 
and kings to the brightness of your rising. Yeah, the nation of Israel was to be separate. It was to not commingle with idolatry, with false religion. It wasn't to intermarry. It was to be set apart. It was to be ethnically clean. All of that, though, was to show the purity of God's people to be a witness. Separation, even within the church, is always to be a witness. We're not just to separate and pull out of conversations with the world. We're to be set apart in holiness and in covenant relationship with the God through with the God of the universe through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ saying he is the only way this is the only holy book and we present it to people it's that same balance that's found within the church all the families of the earth shall be blessed remember the Abrahamic covenant that we've been learning about in Hebrews 11 and Genesis 12 3 this is the evangelism that we're to give going out into all the world to preach the gospel to all creation Mark 16 15 so that In the vision of the future, Revelation 4 and 5, there'll be people of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation all around the throne of God. I think of Alaska, uh, you know, sort of at this pivot point in, in time going into 2020. It's an amazing place. It's a crossroads within our world. So many people that I talk to have either visited Alaska, passed through Alaska, come here through military, come here through business. There's a lot of just transience here. This is a place to be a witness that can influence the world. It's just a unique place for us to be. And it's got such diversity here ethnically that it's an amazing picture of the melting pot of the future that will be in heaven. Everybody focusing on Christ. We have a mission that cannot be stopped. We are under the failsafe called God's Sovereignty, and we should find comfort in God's sovereignty. Look at verse 33. Actually, I'm not sure that Mary and Joseph, who were standing there listening to Simeon, were completely comforted. Look at verse 33. And his father, Joseph, and his mother, Mary, they marveled at what was said about him. They're marveling. Now, they've had angelic instruction about who he is. They are tracking right in terms of the prophecies that were given for the Messiah to be born and to be registered. And the whole thing is happening according to prophetic ministry being fulfilled in the sovereign hand of God. But remember, Mary and Joseph are probably young teenagers. They've just had a baby. I mean, they're just trying to figure that out. And at the same time, they needed the delicate balance of understanding that God had a bigger plan with all of what was going on. And that's where it says that Simeon in verse 34 blessed them. He blessed them. He said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed It's amazing. I don't know how exactly this is called a blessing, but it did bless. It was meant to bless Mary for she was to understand the greater mission and ministry of her child. I think oftentimes we get overwhelmed in the moment in terms of our circumstances, either with our kids, with our family, with our situation. And it's important to be blessed by seeing the sovereign picture of what God is doing that is bigger and greater then our strengths and our weaknesses, our, our places where we have passed and our places where we have failed, God is bigger than all of these things. And that's what Simeon is doing. He's taking a 30,000 foot um, perspective with Mary, but ultimately this 
news gets really hard because this new baby that she's holding will one day bear the weight of a crossbeam. Look at verse 35. It says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul. This is speaking of Mary's own soul or her own heart which is alluding to the cross, the weight of salvation that comes through the cross so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Listen, Christ came and he was to be received by the remnant in Israel and also rejected by many in Israel. He's received by those who walk the narrow road and love Christ and rejected by the wide road that leads to destruction. Most people reject Christ, but there are many who come to Christ. And Simeon was showing this, but at the same time, He was saying that a sword would go through her own soul, that she would live to see the day when Christ would have to die for our sins. And the cross would reveal or bubble to the surface those who would accept and believe Christ and those who would reject Christ. He's the scandalon, Christ is. He's the stumbling block, the one for whom people receive or reject but he's been revealed. Well, the second witness is now brought up in verse 36. Let me just go there quickly. This is Anna. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Let's stop there for a second. Who is Anna? Anna's a prophetess. She's right in the line of women, um, the couple that are mentioned in scripture, a few, Miriam, Exodus fifteen twenty, and Deborah, Judges 4, 4. They spoke the word of God for God. Her life's mission was to be a second witness alongside of Simeon of the Messiah's arrival, Deuteronomy 19.15, and then repeated in, the, in 2 Corinthians 13.1, by the evidence of two or three witnesses, let every fact be established. You remember the two on the road to Emmaus? Remember they saw Christ raised and walked with him? There were two there. Why? To establish the fact that Jesus had been raised from death. The idea, some of the details here that you can miss if you just quickly look them over, overlook them. It says he, she was the daughter of Phanuel. The word Phanuel means face of God or God's face. It's the idea that Anna's whole life was to be projected towards seeing the face of God. Colossians 1.15 says Christ is the image of the invisible God. She was from the tribe of Asher. It says in verse 36, Asher was the name of Leah's son, which was Leah was Rachel's sister, the concurrent wife to Jacob, Genesis 30, 13. That's where the name Asher comes from. It's where the tribe of Asher comes from. The Northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom split 10 tribes in the Northern kingdom that were swooped up by Assyrian captivity. They were the lost tribes, but the, the little nod here towards her being from the tribe of Asher is to say that the lost tribe has come home under King Jesus. What was lost, what was separated has now been brought home. 
This is what Anna is standing for. The word Asher means blessed. She was blessed in her old age. Look at verse 36. The Bible doesn't look down on age. It actually esteems it. She was advanced in years. She was probably some 60 years a widow, but she had lived with her husband, um, been married seven years, and we don't know what happened to her husband. He probably died. And then she was a widow until she was 84 84. So again, this is that culminating moment in her life. Everything apexed here in service to the Lord. First Timothy 5, 9, and 10 speaks of widows indeed, those who are marked by godly reputation, devotion, and service, who are set apart in a unique way in ministry in the New Testament church. She was a woman of God set apart as a prophetess. Perhaps she even lived there at the temple with a special permission to be there because she did not depart from the temple. She was always there. A widow until she was 84 did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting. Now, fasting, as I've studied in scripture, I did actually in our seminary class last semester on prayer. It, it typically in scriptures, always surrounding a crisis. In Matthew nine fifteen, Jesus said of himself, he was full grown speaking and ministering about the future. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom himself is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them and then they will fast. In times of crisis, that's when you fast. That's fasting. And she was coming out of the 400 years of darkness, focused on Christ, focused on his coming as Messiah, as the hope for Israel, as the consolation for Israel to bring peace on earth. Everything was pointed there. And so she would fast in light of that and pray and worship in light of that night and day in prayer. Look at the providence of God in verse 38. Again, the comfort of the sovereign work of God, the perfect detailed plan of God. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, in this case, she's a little different than Simeon. She's not scooping Jesus up. She's seeing Jesus. She's giving thanks for Jesus. And she's immediately turning around and telling people about Jesus. That's Anna. Her prayer and fasting and worship turns into worship and evangelism. And she apparently is not casting pearls before swine or giving it to people who don't want to listen. She's speaking of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She's speaking to people who are receptive, not force feeding to the scoffers. She's speaking to those who would listen. I just did a quick search in my study. John Piper every now and then really comes up with a really great poem to capture the sentiment of a situation like this. And he uses, you know, his gift of poetry to sort of capture the sense of Anna. And I wanted to read just a quick poem that he wrote about her. At 84, her eyes were dim. In Israel, the days were grim. The Roman overlords would spit upon the temple steps and sit 
across the court and watch the priest on duty leave his feast and put a towel on his staff to wipe it up. And then they'd laugh to see the prelate mount the pyre and burn the towel with holy fire and wash his hands and cast a glance as if a spear which said the lance of God omnipotent, unprized, unfeared by you, uncircumcised, will hew in pieces every dog that fears him not and feeds on hog. Old Anna spent her days in prayer. She grieved to hear the Levites swear and plot behind the temple doors to take revenge or visit whores or give out prophecies on whim. In Israel, the days were grim. Her eyes were dim, but not yet blind, and daily she would come and find her place as close as women could within the court, and there she stood with open hands to God or knelt and poured out everything she felt of love to him and hope within for one to come and bear the sin of priest and soldiers, dog and Jew, and she confessed of Anna too. Sometimes the priest would jeer and say, You're blind, old woman. Stay away. Old Anna loved to smile and state, you don't need eyes to pray and wait. In fact, she thought you don't need eyes to live in love or make you wise or give you joy or bring you light. Sometimes old Anna woke at night and saw within the coming one as brilliant as the rising sun. O Lord, grant us the same to see as we light Advent candle three. So believers, you have Simeon's eyes, you have Anna's eyes. You've seen the light, you've seen Jesus, you have the blessing of a clarity in the purpose of your life. Not just 2020 as a year, but for your life, you should have clarity of purpose. Closure on your mission. You know what you're living for and then comfort in the sovereignty of God. We've seen Jesus and we've seen retrospectively, we understand that he was pierced through for our transgressions. Our sins are forgiven because of that. So we settle nothing, we settle for nothing less than, I'm gonna use the, the pun here, but we have 2020 vision on the gospel, right? We see that. We have closure, we have comfort, we know God's plan. God has our year in his hands. Now for unbelievers, any of you who are in the hearing of my voice as an unbeliever, you've not yet seen with Simeon's eyes or with Anna's eyes, you don't know Christ yet. You might know about Jesus and you probably know who you are as you sit there and think, you know, I don't yet know Jesus where I've scooped him up, where I have confidence. I have clarity about my life. I know the meaning of my life. I know why I'm here. I know why God put me here. I have closure on my mission, on the orders that have been given me. I got closure there. And you know what? Life is hard sometimes and life is soft sometimes. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad, but I'm comforted in God's sovereignty. You don't know anything about that yet. You might know things about it, but not really knowing Christ. It's important that you come to Christ It's important that you see through scripture that he really did come 2000 years ago in the form of a baby, fully God, fully man, for you to swoop him up and say, you are my savior, you are my Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, you will be saved. You'll be like the thief on the 
the cross who was dying. One was mocking Christ and one was confused and mocking and then suddenly was affirming Christ. Two thieves on either side of Christ dying on the cross, all dying together. And one thief said, I believe. And Jesus said, well, today you will be with me in paradise. That's who you want to be. Take Jesus at his word and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved.